Hello and welcome to another episode of Professors at Work, our weekly podcast from the American University of Beirut, where I talk with professors and scholars about the work they're doing, the research projects they're involved in, and, and the interventions and engagements in society that they're involved in, and why they do this, what they're learning, and, and what it means for the rest of us. I'm Rami Khoury, your host, and I'm very happy to have as my guest this week, uh, Dr. Tariq Mahmoud, who is a professor associate professor in the Department of English, but he's actually a man of many talents and many activities. Um, the, Dr. Tadeh, thank you for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. I wanted to have you um, on the podcast because you're not a typical uh, English department professor. You are deeply engaged in a variety of activities. You make films, you make videos, you're writing an autobiography. Uh, you've written children's uh, books for uh, adolescents. You've stu you're studying the non-aligned movement in the world, poetry. Uh, you, you have so many different activities that you're involved in. Uh, and and um, I thought of the most useful thing to do was to ask you, what is it that brings together in a single thread? What's the common theme of all of these different activities you do, which are most of them very political as well. So give us a bit of explanation on that, and then we'll talk about one or two of the specific projects. Sure. Everything we do, Rami, is always political, depends on how we look at it. And I suppose for me, these are not different things. It's the same story. It's the same, uh, uh, same experience that I'm trying to come to an understanding of and perhaps I am guided by the, the words of uh, Maya Angelou. She said uh, something like, uh, there's no greater agony than the agony of the untold story. I can't mm -hmm. remember the exact words. Mm -hmm. But really, ever since growing up in Britain, I saw around me that the stories that were told of us, my ancestors, both my my family, but even the ones before we were all born, my history, it had no correlation to the history that I experienced. It had no real meaning to the life that I lived. And I wanted to tell the story that was very close to me, that was close to my friends. And we were invisible. We were fictionally invisible. We were filmatically invisible. We were invisible in universities, even if there were, you know, 60% of the population of some of the universities in inner city ghettos where I lived were non-white students, but the professorship was all white, if you like. So mm -hmm. mine was an attempt to try to find my place in this complicated world. And the only way I could do so was to find that a way of telling the story that I felt hadn't been told. And in telling one story, I began to find that there's lots of different ways of telling the same story. And it changes. It changes as you change. It changes with the world around you. But the, the, the simple aspect of my story was I was struggling to find my place in the world, to find a sense of justice, a sense of peace, a sense of being. And I must say, I've still not found it. <laughs> wow. And uh, when you say that uh, you've been struggling with this, this has been going on your whole life. It, it has indeed. I, I, I didn't grow up 
with uh, with anything really any form of wealth other than being in britain but mm-hmm. uh, i grew up being criminalized by the police for the wrong reasons in fact my first entry into the criminal system was for attempted murder which had nothing to do with me they slapped me around in the police station i was about to sign a statement admitting to something i hadn't done and then they caught the people who actually did it wow we were roughed up a little bit so that bitterness of that experience didn't leave me but it probably took me 30 years to actually write about that experience i got imprisoned on charges of terrorism for something i which was not true we yeah. were quitted of course of all those terrorist uh, of all those charges and it i have only now started writing about them so in a sense the when we go through life many of the things that happen in all of us and everyone's life is very very important everyone has a story every story deserves to be told we all have a desire to tell our stories and all that happens is we sometimes think other people's stories are more important than ours because we sometimes either don't value the our own stories or we don't think we have the ability to tell them and we i don't agree with that i believe all of us as human beings have an incredible story to tell because we're incredible we are amazing creatures on this planet so i started what in whatever way as a semi literate man trying to scribble down what i saw around me and as things went on i began to understand that there was a common denominator to all my stories though it was always the same stories and that was resistance resistance against the forces that may hold me down my friends my family my community it may be resistance simply to reclaim history it may be resistance on a cultural level to say well actually we too exist in this world so you know in a very broad sort of sense and that's what i do and whether it be in my fiction which i do write novels whether it be in my teaching because i believe to learn is also an act of resistance because we are trying to overcome some deficiencies some ignorance some some need that we have so in all these that is always the common denominator and when you referred to me as political in the beginning i do believe in a in a sense that this is not complicated issue if i can't afford to pay my bills and there are many people in the country you're talking to me from and in where i'm talking to you from there are tens of thousands of people who can't pay bills who are yes. hungry who are going hungry the fact that they can't pay their bills is a political issue the fact that they don't have food in the richest country on the planet there is a political issue now so i don't try to shy away from them i embrace them and they become part of my story right and when you talk of uh, we or your our community your community you're talking you originally come from south asia right that's correct i i am uh, i am south asian i'm kashmiri i'm pakistani i'm mm-hmm. british i might even be lebanese if they sort it <laughs> <laughs> if right. they could sort themselves out my point here is that none of us have one identity Right. we are multiple uh, identities and they're not in conflict or contradiction to each other that's a political issue just uh, so when i refer to we 
I do mean my family, I do mean my friends, and in a metaphoric sense, when we uh, of the Global South particularly wrote, used the term the city and our city, it is a metaphor. So the we becomes a metaphor as well, that it is what it is. For me, sometimes it's an immediacy of my family, sometimes it's the street where I live, sometimes it's the city I live in. And very often, it's really the place all around us, and that's what we are. We speak many different languages, and we also share dreams, perhaps in languages that can't even be spoken, because we wish to look at the world around us with some degree of hope, and not in hopelessness. Certainly, I do. And uh, what you're talking about in terms of your own experience obviously resonates widely with people from other parts of the world in other countries where they're a minority, where they uh, look differently than uh, other people. So uh, you're black people, Native Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans here in the U.S. where I am now, for instance. These are common. uh, What you're saying resonates widely with with a lot of people. And in fact, at, at some levels also resonates with the women historically who were invisible and um uh, didn't have their rights. So what you're talking about is you're dealing with your own life experience and how you've translated that into um, scholarship, research, communications um, systems, films, books, uh, and and teaching as well. But it's your experience is a, a, a microcosm of a very global experience, isn't it? Absolutely. We are the globe, really. And one of the things that when you begin to articulate your own stories, you first have to break what is regarded as the norm. Whiteness is the norm. A white Mm -hmm. character, if you're writing fiction, white writers don't have to, they're referred to as writers. We're at times referred to as Asian writers, black writers, writers of color, you know, ethnic writers. I don't know. Sometimes I feel I've become a little curry or a little dish with a different spice on it, you know. But we are. But white people are not referred to that. The no, the world of the white fiction writer is the world of normalcy, in which we're the abnormals. So if we try to do the same back, it doesn't work, because the white writers are actually coming from a privilege of white supremacy, right. and we are negating that white supremacy. So. I do not belong to the minority of the world. I belong to the majority of the world. And, uh, you know, the fact that we write in English is a legacy. Certainly I do. I write in English in Patohari, my mother tongue. And English, the reason I write it is partly to do with the dominance of linguistic imperialism, which in which English is a very major player. And mm-hmm. in a sense... We can't escape from the legacies of imperialism. It doesn't matter how far we try to hide in which sand. It is there. It is brutal. It is living. So in that sense, the articulation of our experiences is also the reclamation of our histories. The reclamation of our histories is also a gift to the future generations because if we don't do it, How will we leave that legacy behind? Will we leave the coming generations like us, invisible? Or will their visibility be aping the white man or aping the white woman or aping the powers that be? So for me, the issue, I may have suffered a lot of violence because of the color of my skin, 
but I have understood as I grew older that my issue was not skin deep. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the actual projects you're involved with to to persist in this uh, in this struggle uh, of resistance that you're um, involved in. You do writing, you do films, uh, you teach, uh, you, and you did a you're involved in a project with another colleague at AUB and elsewhere in Africa, I think in the U.S. about the uh, non-aligned movement when it started and the archival uh, poetry and literature of writers around the world. Uh, of all of those different things that you do, um, tell us about one or two of them in, part, in some um, detail about how these fit in with your uh, overall uh, activism and, and, and quest. Okay, perhaps I'll talk, perhaps I'll talk about the latest thing I'm doing and leave the Afro-Asian writers movement uh, okay. uh, perhaps a, an, another occasion if we ever have one. Currently, I'm very excited about video games. Yes. I've, I've got a great big grey beard at the moment. I've only just mastered the art of potato peelers, but <laughs> decided that all my children won't get off, wouldn't get off computer, uh, my son particularly, wouldn't yes. get off a video game. I used to wander around in Beirut's cafes and the cafes were full when we had electricity, if you recall. Yes. And they were full of gamers. Yes. Every other cafe. And what were they doing? They were shooting Arabs. The yes. terrorists were Arabs. And I thought, bloody hell, what's going on here? So I sort of looked at lots of things. My son was doing similar sort of stuff. And I thought, I sat back and I thought, this is ridiculous. Yes. Here I live in this world, this great big world in which every other kid is hooked to the video game. My son is, and to some extent, so is everyone else around me. The West has... I, I wake up in the morning, Rami. I don't know which war to follow. Should I look at the Palestinian situation, the Syrian situation, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Kashmir? Our world is aflame. It's burning. Yeah. And then the very people who burn us and make money out of our misery make video games on our misery. They have video games in which you're in Karachi, but actually they're talking gibberish, which is passes as Arabic, yes. but they're all killing Arabs. Now, Arab yes. isn't somebody from the so-called Arab world. It's the racist con configuration of anything. You know, an African is an Arab, Pakistani is an Arab, Afghan is an Arab. So when I looked at that and I said, well, hang on a minute. Where is the resistance of ours? Ah, people in this great big $200 billion annual industry, we are in the game as we are out of the game. Out of the game, we are just fodder for the cannon fodder for the Anglo-American empire, particularly unleashing its war machines. And in the video game, we're the same. And then I thought, oh God, they're robbing our resources in real life. They're plundering our cultural resources in a fictionalized world. And there's me writing novels for 50-year-old Guardian readers who don't really read anything. And here's yeah. tens of millions of young kids engaged. How long can they kill themselves for? What does it do to the psych to be shooting yourself, getting out of this game and going out somewhere else and looking at people around? What does it do to our psychology? So I said, no, let's start by me accepting I am illiterate in this new literacy, which I was. 
I had no idea. And let's engage. Let's look critically at these things. Let's encourage that we come from the world. Our folklore is exploited, just right. like the oil is exploited, just like our seas are exploited, our lands are exploited, our labor is exploited. And right. it's the same exploiters very often in which we run the racist tropes. We play the misogynistic roles as well. But so when I started looking at it and looked critically at this process and I thought, my God, it's far worse than the racism on the street. Wow. And yet people were also resisting within this world. Kids were trying to make games. But, you know, if you're from Lebanon, you, you can't open a PayPal account. How are you going to sell something? So I began to teach the stories because I'm a storyteller. I, I'm a, I create fictional worlds. Right. And I look at the contradictions of the real world in a fictional context to make sense of it. Well, a game is a fictional world. So whilst I didn't understand the gameplay and the technical side, I had faith in the kids. I wanted them to teach me. And as a teacher, I became a student. But at the same time, I could teach on the creation of the fictional world, on the making of the character of of the development of the drama, of conflict, of contradictions. So it was a fantastic journey. And in this process, you know, I've just about finishing off the demo of our first game. I've written another one. But I'm very pleased that I've managed to find a way to engage with younger minds where we can say, you must tell your story. Do not in, you know, repeat the stories because you happen to have watched an American film or an American soap. We have our own cultural expressions, our own heroes, and heroes become a contradiction. We have our genres. And in this great big uh, so-called Arab world, we don't even have an Arab uh, enemy. You know, if you look at games coming from Southeast Asia, you'll immediately recognize the enemy. You'll immediately recognize the Western one. We, the cradle of civilization, we don't have it. Well, of course we have it. Where is it? So I began to do that form of teaching primarily not only because of the ne to negate the negative images of us in us, meaning the global south within this great big industry, but also to be able to give value to our history. So it's back to square one of what I was referring to earlier on. Right. In, and in this great journey, we are now not only have a minor, a gaming minor at the AUB, due to the contradictions and conflicts with Lebanon, you know, we, we're suffering a little bit, but we are also attempting to create the first organized global voice within, if you like, a journal and online uh, platform where we will give a space at which we can actually debate. Now, we are not unique in this. There are fantastic gamers and game development developers from all across the Arab region who are taking on the negative isms within this industry and developing both products and critiques. But it's not oh. systematized. It's not organized. We don't have it so that we really take it on head first because, final point on this, yeah. is... So not only in the real world are, our, are the wars 
we are faced by wars which are in essence to exploit us. In the gaming world, we are also being exploited, which are linked then to the weapons development for the next round of fighting, because many uh, a, a gamer is tr many a war machine uses gaming to train the drone pilots, the ga new gadget users of rifles and all sorts of uh, other thing. But most importantly, it's important for your listeners to understand that gaming isn't simply about an enjoyment, entertainment. The gamification process is when we pick up our mobile phone. We're all game. We're all playing some sort of a game. And in an educational sense, what do we teachers do? We play games with our students. We play role play. We create yeah. handouts. So in a sense, all uh, I was trying to do is to say, well, let us embrace this new phenomena and not run away from it. Let us not condemn our kids who we can't get off the screen because they're addicted to the game. Let us understand why they're addicted to that game, what it is that is so addictive, and let us see if we can actually use it to our own advantage. The problem is never with the gun, but with the shooter. And if you look at the shooter, often they kill people in the mode of the, uh, the you know, the RP, the role-playing game, you can see the video effects of it. They live stream it. You see the rifle as they're killing people in real life. So why fight against this? So as a part of this, really, that's what I've been doing and been very excited, as you can tell from my voice. I think a few of my beard's hair have yeah. uh, gone gray, not gone gray, begun to stop being white since I got into this format. Though I've been told by everyone, including my kids, to shave the thing off doesn't yeah. work. <laughs> well, uh, we've uh, almost run out of time. Uh, so if we come back full circle uh, from this uh, extraordinarily exciting work that you're doing in the in the video ga gaming world, and you link it back to your entire uh, life cycle, and link it back, if you could, at the end of our discussion here, to you to your role as a professor at AUB. Um, is is this the um, normal role of a university English department as you see it, or are you also in the English department carrying out a form of resistance that's also evolving the university? Well, I think there is an act of resistance within the university, but in a way, that's quite normal. We all do. So do you, Rami. I've seen your mm. literature as well. Because mm. the university is an institution. It brings with it 150 years of baggage as well. So yeah. there are those issues. But one of the things that I really do struggle with in, from day one was that I couldn't get my students, the overwhelming majority of whom are from the Levant and the, the Arab regions, as you know, yeah. I couldn't get them to imagine their, themselves. I couldn't get them to break the stranglehold of the colonization of their imagination, not wow. just their mind. I couldn't get them to imagine another world is possible beyond the fetters of capitalism. I couldn't get them to say their story. I mean, the number of times, oh, there's nothing exciting happening in my life. I, I just live in Beirut. I said, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. You know, I mean, we, we can't even have a moment without the lack of excitement. But yeah. I understand the feeling because amongst our youth, you know, the poverty of countries like Lebanon, we've suddenly shot 
from a sort of a middle country to a third world country of, of mm -hmm. hunger with 80% of the population on food insecurity, really. And in that setup, our middle class youth, that's who we teach, are have a dream that the world in the West is where all the problems will be resolved. And I can understand that. But also culturally, they don't value themselves, really. And that is also the case across many places. You know, the whiteness has drummed our own value out of us. And that's also a part of white supremacy and a part of it's privileged in the world. So I don't think I'm particularly unique within the, the university or anything like that. I think every one of us are incredibly unique and working in the times like now and surviving, whether we are in Lebanon or whether we are in America or Britain, these are seriously challenging times and it takes an awful lot of courage and strength resilience and luck to raise children, to raise our lives, to maintain our life with dignity and all I always try to do. And I keep, my life is really easy. My house yeah. can consist of leaves from a tree, uh, bin liners, rubbish, tin cans, because in all these things around us is the embodiment of life, embodiment yeah. of contradictions, of metaphors. And I love because I, I have loved I, you know, one of my great loves in life was poetry because yeah. it was only through poetry and metaphors anything made sense to me. And I'm not sure I've learned an awful lot other than saying, let's value our life, let's value our stories, let's tell them with pride, for it's our stories that make us. Even two lovers can't really fall in love. They might get a lot of, uh, without a story. They might get some lust, but without uh, a story themselves developing a story where's love going to be and sometimes you know Rami in depending on where we live what's the story love itself is an act of resistance it right. makes us human it's what makes life worth living because it can't exist infested with hatred it must right. exist in its purity in its in its beauty all other things are complete tainting of the process right. wow on that uh uh, note, um, Dr. Tariq Mahmoud, I think we have to end because we've run out of time, but this is a, a fascinating discussion uh, of, of incredibly important issues which are not only universal but probably timeless as well, this issue of, you know, subjugated uh, people from different cultures and imperial controls and money-making exploitation and uh, all of these things. So I really, really thank you for sharing this uh, your views and what you're doing and uh, we'll come back to you again at some point soon and look at more dimensions of this because this is clearly a struggle that is uh, continuing uh, to expand uh, all around the world including within western societies which is, of which you're an example in in great britain uh, but uh, this is something that definitely we'll look at some more in the future and uh, i thank you for being with us thank you rami and good luck you bet. And uh, thanks to the audience for joining us. My guest has been Dr. Tariq Mahmoud, Associate Professor in the Department of English at AUB and a man of many uh, activities in the cultural and political and personal realms. Uh, I'm Rami Khoury, your host. Thanks for being with us for Professors at Work and join me again next week. Bye for now. Bye.